To try to serve two masters is to waver, to wobble, to wander, and to eternally have an unmade-up mind. To try to serve two masters. You can't do it. can't do it. And that's why idolatry is bad for you. It's not just that God hates statues. We'll talk a little more about statuary here. But what we really want to focus on, though, is actual idolatry, which is bigger than statues. It's about having a different master than Jesus, having a different God than God. And it's pretty simple. You can find your idols. You have them. You have them. Uh, they're household ones. We don't necessarily worship them together like they did of old, but, but we do. Our, our society lives on them. The way you can find your idols is when you find that you are anxious, when you find that you are afraid, and especially if you find in that moment that you want to go do something or look at something to make you not feel anxious or afraid, you can rest assured that's your idol. If it just so happens to be a picture that you look at, well, that should tell you something. I'll tell you what I found to be the greatest idol in my life. I, I, don't, I can't promise you'll like it. It's the clock. I look at the clock when I'm afraid, and I look at it for comfort. But it never brings me comfort. It just tells me how long until I have to be afraid. Now, I have a funny story about time I want to tell you. It's about, actually, the funny story is about Clyde. I love Clyde. Clyde was great. Clyde was one of my members. And let this story, so far as it's public, ever be said, I love Clyde. Okay? Clyde's going to do a funny thing. But I, I love Clyde. This guy had no guile. He was a, a, a tree guy, went out and loved his, his forest, forester out in the Philadelphia area. And uh, another funny story about Clyde is he once missed Good Friday. He didn't come to Good Friday service because, and I didn't know until Easter that this was happening, but he had eaten a root he found in his backyard. And he ended up in the hospital. And on Easter Sunday, he says, I almost died, but I'm here. And I was like, can you tell a guy, you know? Tell your pastor what's going on on Good Friday. Anyway, anyway. Clyde also, the first year I was there, every time out the door, would look at his watch and say, well, that was more than 15 minutes, Pastor. He did it. Often. I went about 25 there, usually. The reason was because Bible study had all of five people in it. Congregation of 55, I figure we got three years till we're out of money entirely. We got to do something. They didn't like it, though, doing something. Clyde didn't like it. But what's the best part about Clyde is that he dealt with it. He got over it, 25-minute sermons. Um, and then the guy who followed me, Kozlowski, if he's out there and sees it's hilarious, he told me this story. Um, it's like you know, a month and a half, two months into his, his tenure there. And he's preaching his – he's already – he's a new guy, his second call maybe, 15-minute sermons, right? And Clyde comes out, shortchanging us, Pastor. <laughs> I didn't set him up for that, right? It's hilarious. But it shows you how much our habits with time drive us, how much we don't like when we feel that changing, and how much also then we don't mind it once it's changed. Why do I bring this up? Because I want to ask you, late service at St. Paul, over the next four weeks to decide by telling me and your elders whether or not you want these longer sermons to go on. 
or whether you'd rather go back to something a little more, ah, they call it normal, but it's only been normal for about 70 years. So, so far as everyone who's alive is concerned, it's normal, but I can, I can lead you through the history of how it's not. I know where the 15-minute sermons came from. I know the teacher who taught the, uh, us to do it that way. I know the book that we still read, and I know that he was a Seminex guy. So if that rings a bell, all our preaching for 40 years is still being taught by liberals who don't believe the Bible because we make them read a book about how to preach based on that. Now, does he tell us in that book at St. Louis Seminary that the, the flood didn't happen? No. But he does tell us not to preach the text. He tells us not to preach the text. He says, go into the text and find the truth in the text and pull it out. And then figure out how to tell people what it means in their own language. Now, what that means is that the text isn't true. That means it's not true. I have to find the truth and then give it to you. That makes me the immediate intercessor between you and God. I don't like that. I think that's wrong. I think the text is what God said. And my job is to make sure you hear it by hook or by crook. And that's where then it comes down to. I have no problem shortening this service if that's what you want. Here's my problem. My problem is somebody who doesn't come to this service complaining and then this service getting, short, getting shortened when all of you want it the way that it is. That's my problem. So what I want you to do is tell me, pastor, teach us like this, okay? I'm gonna keep teaching you. I'm gonna spend the next month trying to tell you why I think the service structure we have is a good one in newsletters. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to lay it out there. But at the end of the day, I did not have us having a midweek noonday prayer service. And it's evident from the continued attendance that we need one. So I'm not omniscient. I can't see clearly what you think. Maybe you're just doing this because you want me to feel good and you think I want long sermons. And I kind of do. But that's not the reason to do it. The reason to do it from where I sit is because short sermons in Sunday school for 100 years emptied our pews. I say, let's go back and do what they were doing before that. What was that? They all just came to church. They still do it at the Catholic church where they still have lots of people going. It's almost like Sunday school is the way to get your kids not to come to church. And if you study it, I can even tell you why. It's because you take their fathers away and their fathers never talk to them about God. That's why. It's not rocket science. But it is, it is hard, isn't it? It is hard to talk about God. Yeah? And it's hard, I'd say, to talk at church. Because it's easy to feel shame everywhere. And people make you feel shame everywhere with their words. We live in, they call it cancel culture. It just means shame culture. If you don't do what we think you should do, we will shame you until you shut up and go away. That's how everything in American society works top to bottom. Most clubs, most, most office, offices, schools, everything. It's all shame. The church should not be about shame. The church is about forgiveness. It's about using our words because we're forgiven, not to get forgiven. Because we're forgiven, we can now change the way we look at others. And again, the Ephesians text before us today is glorious with regard to this. The section that is before it, oh, I set that aside over there, is establishing the certainty that we have in Christ. So when the first word is therefore, therefore, in Ephesians 5.1, that means that what came before you have to bring forward. What came before is stuff like, by grace you have been saved, and this through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. So that when he's now going to talk about what your life should look like 
as a Christian, you must understand that is only because by grace you have been saved and nothing you would do is something to boast of even should you achieve it. These words I'm going to talk about now in detail are not for boasting in. They're for bettering your prayers with. And there's a massive difference in these things. Okay, so therefore, because you know you're on grace, because you know Jesus has you, because you're about to feast on his body and blood and unify with him eternally, be imitators of God as beloved children, it says. The word there in Greek for imitator is mimetai. You can hear the English mimic, mimic, copy, right? Copy God, it says, as beloved children. That word beloved or love will show up three times here. All three times is the same word in Greek. Greek has like seven or eight different words for love. They mean different things from like, I have a passion for pizza to I kind of don't mind my dog to I will sacrifice my life from, for you. And that's the one that's here, right? So therefore mimic God as those for whom he has sacrificed himself that you might be children and walk in willingness to sacrifice for others as Christ sacrificed himself for us and gave himself up for us. Uh, so the love there is not squishy. It's, it's verbal, it's tactile, it's real. It means you lose. How hard is that, right? You're in a conversation with somebody. They say something, you go, <clears throat> can you breathe and lose and come back with mercy? Because that's what we want to practice doing more of here. That's what we want to be as a people. And then in our families, it'll be that way. In our workplaces, it'll be that way. We spent 100 years trying to trick people to come to church with mission gimmicks rather than just becoming better Christians and believing that'll actually work. People will find out about it, want to be like us, want to not be shamed somewhere. <laughs> Can you imagine? What a thing. Okay, verse 3 then. Oh, excuse me, the rest of verse 2. Christ giving himself up for us, that language there, um, let's see here. It's, the English doesn't convey there's a cultic, sacrificial reality going on in all four of these words. Uh, fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. Uh, um, there's actually four words in there, so I don't know why, how it's being brought into those three. It doesn't matter without going to dig at it. The point is all of them tie to the temple. All of them are sacrificial in a clean Jewish way. And they lead to the final declaration of atonement or purity, which comes from the temple, which is that God has a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. You see this if you go look at Leviticus, everything. So cut the spleen, put the fat over here, burn it to a char, and God will have a pleasing aroma in his nostrils. Is over and over again. That's the word, though, that he's pulling forward and saying that's Jesus on the cross now. Everything that was going on in the temple, Jesus at the cross now. Sacrifice for you that you might also see the good of self-sacrifice. Huh? Not the fallback and not to believe you must earn, but simply to be born again because he's your father. Hmm? And now he's going to list these, it's really six words we're going to zoom in on, two, two sets of three, two triangles. Six things that he says they should not be named among us. He says that they are not proper for us. And then finally, I set my card down for the last one. Um, we should not have a connection with any of these things. Um, and 
again, they're, they're bland in English. Um, sexual immorality, impurity, and covetousness. Now, let's just zoom in on impurity to try to make my point here, okay? If I were to spend 10 minutes telling you about how you should be more pure, don't be impure. And I say, go out and do it. Notice how vague that is. Like, what are you going to do? You know, wash your hands? I mean, I guess, I guess that's what we might do, but it doesn't sound spiritual at all, right? So what's that mean? So we've got to dig into that and then see that covetousness on the side of that is no more clear. What it's really saying you're not supposed to do, especially since Lutherans have a habit of taking that ninth and tenth commandment of covetousness and being like, that's the one you can't keep, so don't worry about it. Right? You're forgiven. Jesus loves you. It's true, but it's not an excuse to think it's good. So let's dig at that word. And then finally, sexual immorality. While I would like to think everyone knows what that is, we don't. We don't. So let's start there. Because you'll know that word as soon as I say it. You know this word in Greek, porneia. Let porneia not be mentioned among you. Now, by the time Paul is using this word, porneia has come to mean any form of non-marital sexual activity. Uh, anything that would destroy marriage, that's porneia. Anything that's in marriage, it's not. Now, you can get into debates about what that means and how far like youth groups like to do, but th the point is not that. The point is that marriage should be lauded and upheld among us as something God created for the making of families. And that the making of families is how churches are made. <laughs> that the family grows together. And so for that reason, again, you can translate it fornication, licentiousness, unnatural procreative actions. All that should not be named among us. I would think putting eight-year-olds on testosterone blockers would be right out by the way, if we're going to talk to our culture about these things. But pornography, I probably should mention, you should know that there is close to no man alive who has not been exposed to this in some manner through advertising on regular network TV, that what is on beer commercials should be considered pornography, ultimately. Do you have to go run and turn your TV off right away? That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying let's not pretend we don't live amongst heathen who objectify women constantly, and in fact, objectify men too. So the fact that porneia as an ancient word first meant slave, it meant slave, sexual slave, that you would look at someone as less than human and belonging to you, let me suggest that's way bigger than pornography. That's way bigger than sexual intercourse in America amongst the college students. What it is about, we don't believe anybody else is a human, but me. That's porneia at its real root. And now, what is Paul saying? He says, when you come to church, let's not do that together. Let's go the opposite direction. Let's be better than this. Huh? Let's believe marriage is good. With that, roll in this idea of akatharisia. <laughs> you can hear the word catheter in it. No one likes that word in English. If you have to have one, it's not real good. A catheter cleans you, though, right? It gets the dirty out. So it means a cleaning. And akatharisia. It's got an alpha privative on the front. I'm going to take the time to explain that because I think it's worth knowing alpha privatives. Greek does this all the time, and we do it in English too, where you have a word that means something like good, and then to make the word bad, you just call it ah good, right? Although we don't do that one, right? But um, I don't know. We do it with the word anti a lot too. Um, so in Greek here, the word is clean with the A on the front, unclean. But this word also has heavy, cultic, implications. 
What do I mean by cultic? I need to stop and talk about that a little bit. In our day, cult tends to mean a small group of people who emotionally manipulate those who gather, often for the sake of some, for, some sort of pyramid scheme, really. They, they get money funneling to the top. Um, so, for example, um, I, I don't know if I could quite put them in this, but the Jehovah's Witnesses Watchtower Society, they are a closed emotional system. If you join them, you have to leave your friends and family. Uh, if you leave them, you lose everything you had with them. Uh, you're forced to pay money when you go there to buy uh, pamphlets that you have to give out, and that's part of your salvation. Uh, and so you're always working, working, working together. That's like the definition of cult as Americans use it. Um, also, in theology, we will sometimes use that word to talk about non-creedal Christians. So someone who doesn't think Jesus is God but says, I'm a Christian, we would say, yeah, you're probably at a, with a cult instead. But there's an older meaning of this word that I want to try to rehabilitate a little bit here. Because another word that we throw around all the time as Americans, you hear it on TV, that's the word culture. Culture comes from the same root. So what's a culture? It's a group of people that do something the same way all the time. And if you don't do it like them, they get mad at you. You know, a cult. Uh, so a culture is just a bigger form and version of cult. And now again, what does it mean to be unclean? It means to go against your culture in a taboo way. Now, we're in a tough spot here because we need to go against our culture in a way that's taboo to them on many things. And yet at the same time, we want to understand what Paul's saying to us here. He's not talking about them right now. He's talking about us. What does it mean that we have a culture here at St. Paul that you should try to be a part of? It means that before you complain, you should try to figure out why. If you can find out why, and it's a good reason, you should put your heart behind it and try to make it better. It means you should see this place again as a place where we are not seeking to objectify each other, but realizing that we're holding together around the cult of eating and drinking this bread and wine from Jesus. And the ancients talked about it that way, and they didn't mean the bad sense cult. They just meant you're different from everybody else. And so in that way, if there were something that I or you could do that would literally upset every person in this whole building, Paul also means here, don't do that. Like whatever that thing is, if you're going to blow everybody up, if you're going to make everybody angry by some uncouth action, don't do it. No, that's, that's the second thing here. Don't objectify people and don't needlessly start fights over things that don't ultimately matter. Now, on a cultic or cultural level. All right, the third word then is pleonexa, and it's as far removed from sexual immorality and cultic taboos as you can get. The word I think is best translated as just an insatiable hunger. But it's not about food. It's not about food. It's about never having enough. You can see where the covetous comes from, covetousness comes from. But it's not just wanting something. It's that you're always thinking, if I get something else, I'll be okay. But you're never okay. Huh? And then you give in to that. Now, that thinking is native to humans. Expect to find this in your life. You're going to be like, if I get this, I'll be happy. You're going to get it. You're gonna, oh, I'm happy. And then you're going to be like, I'm not happy. And over time, again and again, that happens. So this isn't about Paul saying you're going to be perfect. Again, he's saying when you come together as a people, when you have conversations with each other as Christians, don't use the conversation to hunger for what you can get from the other people. Don't profit in your relationships with the people at church. Seek to have their life profit by you being present. 
See how it inverts the entire thing? And can you imagine then a congregation where we're not afraid of each other because we don't objectify each other? We understand our culture and we recognize that there are things we shouldn't do. And then again, we're not here to take advantage of each other. These things should not be named. Notice how if I were to do the standard Lutheran thing of like trying to make you feel guilty and then tell you how Jesus makes it all okay, how that would not help us right now. Can can you see that? Like trying to turn this into a gospel lesson isn't going to work. Even though we should all know Jesus rose from the dead, we're all Christians, he loves us. Like I don't have to tell you that for you to like believe you don't have to save yourself. But the reason Lutherans don't preach like this is because we're afraid that if I tell you this, you'll go out and think you have to save yourself. I don't know. Talk to me if that's your problem. (laughs) I'll try to talk you out of it. But I think, I said this last service, I think what happens when you dig into text like this is you get hungry. You get hungry for more of it. And you kind of want this life. And if you go and you try to live a life where you don't objectify others and you try to be culturally clean, you try not to hunger and you find that you do all those things anyway, that's why we're here. We're here as a church so we can find out how bad we are at this and then come back and not be cast aside. Not be shamed for it, which is what the next word is going to get into. So when he gets into, we go down a little bit, this filthiness and foolish talk and three, uh, crude joking. Uh, that's three different, again, terms that create a triangle and a meaning together. And they're all about the words we use with each other. And the first one straight up just means shaming talk. Not shameful talk, but shaming talk. Think of it as like you're going to... Um, to put someone in their place. You're going to let them know what they really ought to think. And again, I would contend to you that if we can take one idea out of today and all work on it together in our personal lives and then all work on it together here is that when we come into this place, we want to be unashamed to be here and we want to make sure everyone else is welcome, that we don't shame them. They say something and, and we don't understand it. It's not like, what was that? Instead, it's, oh, tell me more. Just trying to be kind in some ways, but recognizing how if you're living on television, really, you're getting cultural imbibing of how to behave, whether you know it or not. And so that means to not act like the people you're watching, you're going to have to work on it. And that, again, church is great for this. We're a place where we're a bunch of sinners that can work on it together. We can forgive each other. We can grow. And Jesus is behind it all. Yeah. So I don't think these sound like bad things. I think that these sound like good things that we would not shame. The, the second one there is the closest this section comes to comedy. Um, I've often struggled with this text. I've had it used against me by people in a variety of ways. And there are church bodies in history uh, that say, you, know, you can't laugh. You go re- read the rule of St. Benedict. Uh, no laughing, it's forbidden, straight up. Uh, and they would point to this text as their reason. This is the closest, this word is the closest they would get to being right. I don't think they're quite right. Um, But they have a point. Laughter isn't good just because either. Fun isn't good just because, right? Uh, So what's bad here? What should we avoid? Moro logia. You can hear the word logia, logos, like uh, biology, right? Or astrology. It just means words about something. So moro logia, words about what? (laughs) Moro. It comes right into English as moron. Moron. Don't talk like morons. <laughs> How do you do that? Uh, there's a bunch of ways to translate this again. Um, you could have it as uh, don't be a dull wit. Uh, don't utter absurd things. Um, don't be foolish. It gets used for foolish in the Old Testament. But I think the heart of this thing is 
it's not that you can't make mistakes, right? We're, we're allowed to speak and be like, oh, no, I was wrong about that. You know, and that would be foolish. It's not like you can't make a humorous jest. I don't think that's what it's saying either. What it's saying, though, is that be careful. Be careful when you jest because you never know who you might hurt. Because this particular word, again, moral legia, has the tendency of inflaming people. It can be kind of like making fun of somebody. Ah, look at them. Aren't they funny? He he. Like that, right? And we don't want that. We don't want that among us. So it's not that there's no laughing, but when you laugh, why are you laughing? Or who are you laughing at? Now, laughing at yourself, I find that's a, that's a cure for all manner of things. Uh, finally, uh, the, uh, the last word here, uh, eutrapelia, means <laughs> like technically not to talk too fast, uh, which I find funny because I do. But it, it really doesn't mean just like speed of, of verbosity. Uh, what it means is responding without hearing. Yeah, That you would just be so ready to speak that you never hear what's being said. Now again, take these three in a, in, a, in a pattern together. Words that don't shame, words that aren't absurdly upsetting, and words that do not speak too fast but seek to hear. Amongst the people who would not treat each other as objects, who would want to have a culture which feels healthy and clean and good together, and who are striving not to take advantage of each other the way the rest of the world is. And Jesus, through Paul, says, this is how you should try to be. This is how you should try to be. And I, again, I find this encouraging. He ties this all then to this word idolatry. That's in verse, um, excuse me, I just covered the camera there. Uh, down in verse 5, after listing all these things, porneia, akatharissa, pleonexia, astrotaes, Moralagia and eutrapelia. He links the last one one more time to this word idolatry. And it's a Greek word, uh, idolatria, which I want to spend more time on again here. It comes from, initially, this idea that when the people of Israel went into Canaan, the gods who they were worshiping in Canaan, Baal primarily, who's the god of the sky, like Zeus, um, they were worshipped as the sky. Like Baal wasn't like behind the sky. He kind of what was this thing, right? And then when they make a statue of him, that isn't because they think that's actually Baal. They believe it's just a representative, a symbol, so that Baal will hear that they are crying, crying to him. Now the word idol comes about as the Israelites see this, and particularly the prophets start to call it foolishness. And I want to distinguish here between the word idol and icon, icon meaning image, because the Old Testament very intentionally does not forbid icons. It instead forbids idolatry. What's at the heart of this? Deuteronomy 32, 17, 1 Corinthians 8, 5. You can look them up later. The heart of this is this. When you are worshiping something that's not Jesus, you are either worshiping just a piece of wood or a rock, or the front of your phone, or you're worshiping a demon. And those are your two options, right? So you're worshiping Jesus, you're worshiping a rock, or you're worshiping a demon. And what Paul, again, insinuates is that most of us can't tell between the rocks and the demons. We really don't know. And so you wouldn't know. So worship Jesus instead. But then here again, he connects all these other words to idolatry. 
porneia, akatharissa, planexeria. So you know, your hunger for yourself, your objectifying of others, all of these are the true idolatry, the true worship of someone else that's not Jesus. And as I said earlier, I contend this is when you're taking your fear, your trust, your love, you're putting it somewhere in creation in an attempt to hang on to it. When God has said the whole thing is going to burn away, it's all going to go away eventually, why would you hang on? Why would you not use what you have now to help others, right? Again, this culture of non-shaming and love and welcoming, which all recognizes it's not really in the text today. I want to have it on a different sheet. But this is a thing. Christianity entails from you a sacrifice. You can't be a Christian and not sacrifice. You're going to have to try. You're going to have to lose. You're going to have to give. Why? Because it's all going to be taken away from you anyway. You're going back to dust anyway. So the sooner you realize that's not really a punishment for you the way it is for everybody else, you're getting it all back a hundredfold. Whatever you give away, it's not really gone. God owns it all anyway. The more you can just believe that, I mean, the, more, the more free you're going to feel. You know, it's, I don't, again, I don't think it's rocket science, but it does mean catching the story. And when you catch the lie, catching that one too, and be like, that's a lie. I'm not going to listen to that anymore. You, know, you got to do that. There's too many lies floating around. Okay, so... Let no one deceive you with those, verse 6, empty words. Because of these things, all the list that was given before, because of societies that live like ours do now, the wrath of God is coming upon the sons of disobedience. Ah, the word there is apathy. Apatheo. The disobedience is one of uh, non-caring chalance. Oh, what's God going to do to me? Well, because of that, his wrath is going to do some serious stuff now and later. So don't associate with them. Does that mean don't work where there's a pagan? No, you got to work. That's not what he's saying. He means don't let their mindset become your mindset. In fact, if I think that word, I'm going to look this one up again because it is really good. It's verse seven there. Uh, oh, Mayor, where are you? Sumetakoi. Yeah. So it doesn't really even have the word mind in it, but it's got the word meta in it. If you're into arguing about being cool with generational theory amongst postmoderns, then you have to be able to talk about the meta, okay? I don't care. It's stupid, but it's about a story that controls everything. A meta is a story that controls everything. And he says, don't sum meta with them. Sum mean, meaning having the same one. Don't get together in their story with them. Yeah? So it's not about where your body is, it's about where your ears are. What your eyes are seeing when they look and who is running the story in your heart. Okay, walk as children of light then, since you were darkness and are no longer. A few words, we're at 31 minutes here, just a few words on Luke 11 so that I can have you go home and maybe not worry about demon possession uh, and in fact be, be quite confident. Um, the person who I want you to think about in this story uh, where Jesus is, he's cast out a demon, right? And then they're whispering in the corner, it's because he's got a demon. That's how he does it. It's not God. It's a demon doing this. And the way I see this is he kind of smirks when he hears this. One. He's like, really? Oh, I, because your guys over there are doing all this stuff that I let them do. And I do it the same way. And we do it exactly the same way. So, so all right, who are you saying is in charge here? Because if I, if I am a demon... Well, then they're demons too, and you're worshiping at a demon temple. And, and if I'm not a demon, then I'm God. So you should listen to me. And, and when Jesus makes this case, you can imagine everyone's like, 
What do you do to someone who says that? I mean, the woman shouts out, blessed is the womb that bore you. Well, he was giving it to the authorities, so maybe that was some of it. But what does he say back? No, not uh, Hail Mary, full of grace. Not that. Not that, in fact. Uh, but instead, blessed are those who hear what I say and keep it. So what was he talking about then? This demon that's been cast out that flees away and then comes back? You know who I am glad I'm not at that moment? Is the guy who was the mute who had the demon in him. Can you imagine sitting there? You're free. Oh, I'm free. Jesus saved me. And what's Jesus saying? Jesus is talking about how that demon's going to come back and inhabit me with seven other demons. Oh, you know, Lord, teach me to pray. I, I imagine, I hope that he was listening and kept following Jesus. And that wasn't what it was about. But the point of the story here is not for you to get worried about demon procession per se. If you want to talk about it, we can. Prayer is your answer. Open the Psalms, start reading them out loud. Don't stop till the demon's gone. I mean, it's, it's that, again, not rocket science. It's hard. It's hard, and it's scary, but that's what it is. Um, but that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about how powerful the devil can get. They just called him the devil. He's like, oh, you think I'm the devil, do you? Do you really? Do you know how powerful this guy is? Can you imagine? what? How are you ever, let me tell you a story. How are you ever, if a man has a castle and great troops and armor and a treasure hidden inside, Who's going to go get that treasure? Now, what's he saying there when he says that? This is important to see what that parable's about. The earth is the fortress. The devil is the man with the armor. The treasure is you. And Jesus is saying to those who say he has a demon, <laughs> I'm going to get mine. And if you're not mine, see ya. If you're not with me, you're against me, he says. Same Lord will say against his apostles who want to like call down fire. You know, if you're not, uh, if you're, he, he, in verse, I forget, it's in Mark. So it's not only that if you're not with Jesus at one moment, you're out. So don't hear that saying there's no repentance. But do hear it saying that if you go against Jesus, if you choose idolatry, if you worship wood and stone, I will worship wood and stone. I will not hear the word of the Lord. You get what's coming to you. And you're here in church because you know that, you know you deserve that, and you know he hung on that cross, taking the full brunt of it, because that's who he is. The God who doesn't want to punish evil men so much as save them from their evil. Huh? So again, as we, St. Paul, continue to figure out what it means uh, to be church, to be gathered and called here at this time, with a nation in disarray, with a city that is the, the dumping ground for you know, the country of Springfield, and with a people falling out of a church that was in crisis for years and years over trying to do something that everyone believed was very important but didn't happen. Ultimately, it closed. But what you still have is the same God. Whether or not the altar is the same altar, you got the same God coming in bread and wine to inhabit you, to empower you. And he tells you, you are light and not darkness. And whatever came before to bring you to this place is because he has better things in store. So you'll forgive me if I take an extra five minutes sometimes to tell you about it before we feast. In the name of Jesus.